Hi and welcome to Life Beat. This week we are doing a Faith in Life segment with our Faith Outreach Coordinator, Tom Powell. He's going to be doing an interview, so I hope you enjoy. Hello everyone and welcome to the Life Beat podcast. I am your host, Tom Powell, and today with me I have Ben Edwards. Ben is the Dean at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. Ben, thank you for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. All right, so today we're going to talk about uh, what we would usually talk about on the podcast, uh, things that relate to being pro-life. I have some specific questions. One question in particular I think might be uh, a little bit of a hard question, but a common question uh, that people who take the pro-life position may face. So you'll want to stay with us for that. Uh, Ben, first, before we get into it, uh, I'd like to take a moment and have you just introduce yourself, maybe tell us a little bit about your background and what you do here at the seminary. Well, I, I've been here uh, at the, the church. We are a church-based, uh, a local church-based seminary. Um, <clears throat> I've been on staff of the church for about 14 years. I've been involved in the seminary for about nine years now. And uh, our heartbeat is really to, to prepare men for gospel ministry. Uh, we want to use God's word to help shape faithful men to, to pursue uh, the work of, of gospel ministry. And that's what we've been doing since we started in 1976. And so we uh, have two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Master of Theology. The Master of Divinity is the, the standard seminary degree for the person who's, who's planning on going into full-time Christian ministry. That would be the degree they would pursue. The Master of Theology is the degree that you'd uh, pursue after you've completed your Master of Divinity to, to kind of help you shore up some things, maybe study something a bit more deeply, focus on an issue that you weren't able to quite focus on in your Master of Divinity. That's great. Um, so uh, uh, you've kind of already touched on this in your in your introduction here, but why would somebody be be interested in checking out your seminary here? What kind of student uh, comes here? Yeah, I'd say that the students that come here, I think, are largely those who who are serious about theological study. Uh, we we take God's word and, and the study of God's word seriously, and so there is academic rigor that's involved. But it's also those who who really love His church love God's church and want to, to serve in God's church. And uh, one of the things we've all been said is uh, seminary is a time in which you're sharpening your axe so that you will be more effective when you go out into the work. And so we, we really, the students who come here are students who uh, would be, I'd say conservative students. We are a Baptist seminary, and so those with uh, Baptistic uh, perspectives and beliefs and those who really want to, to be involved in local church, church planting, overseas missions, those are the kinds of students that we have. All right, now I want to jump right into our first question, uh, and this is a question that you might find easy, so we'll start with it. We'll start with the easy one. Uh, have you always been pro-life? Uh, if you have, why? And if you have not, uh, if you've adjusted your position over time, tell us about that. Uh, as far as I know, I've always been pro-life. The, the I grew up in a Christian home. I, I trusted Christ at a young age. And so I was always pro-life. But I think probably around 2008 was the time in which I began to focus a bit more fully on the issue, to study it a bit more uh, deeply and to think about it uh, more carefully. And I think that was kind of two driving factors. One, that was an election year. And so that was not the first time I was ever involved in an election, but was one that I probably followed a bit more closely. Mm-hmm. 
I was thinking about the issues. And then that was also a time in which I just started working as the director for a campus ministry at Wayne State University. And so I was thinking about uh, issues uh, more broadly in culture and society and how to help young people think about these things. And so because of that, I began to, to focus a bit more on the, the pro-life issue. Yeah, and there may be some people in our audience who are kind of at that same point in their life as what you're describing. Uh, in that, this last year, uh, the last few years, uh, from what I can see, things have become more politicized than ever. Every issue becomes a political issue now, um, and uh, and it's really uh, really heated up. And so, for a lot of people who maybe didn't care before, uh, they're now picking a side in uh, in multiple arguments. But in this one in particular, as it's a, a matter of life and death, this is something people who maybe they they've always had a general uh, pro-life value, or perhaps they've always had general pro-choice values, but now it's something that they're reevaluating as, uh, uh, as, like you said, during an election year, you began to think about uh, the issues. Yeah, I think that is something where, where many people are probably reevaluating their understanding, especially with the Supreme Court decision potentially mm. coming down. It's, it's going to force people now to, to really wrestle with in each state, what do they want to see happen? Before, there was always kind of a, a blanket. What well, doesn't matter, the Supreme Court said this is what can or cannot happen. Yeah. And now we're going to be forced to, to think about it more carefully. And I, and I hope we do actually take time to, to think about it. Yes, we, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, with current events, people are going to be forced, and by people I mean uh, in individual states, perhaps e even local governments are going to have to take positions that before they could afford to not have an opinion on, but now they're, they're going to have to. I hope we have time to get into those issues today. Uh, so let's move on to our second question. Uh, do you believe that there are scriptural grounds for your position? So uh, do you believe that, uh, not just that you can support this idea with the Bible, but do you think someone can actually derive the pro-life position from the Bible? Uh, absolutely, yeah. And I, I think it starts with the, the biblical teaching that man is made in the image of God. Okay. And because he's in the image of God, he has dignity and value. We, we see in Genesis 1, uh, 26, 27, where, where God says he's going to make man in his image and his likeness. And so he made male and female, he created them in his own image. So would you say if somebody is, uh, it, it, when an abortion is committed uh, or any uh, killing of any human is committed, it's the destruction of the image of God? It's a destruction of someone made in the image of God. Okay. So that's what Genesis 9, for example, after the flood with Noah, um, the, the, the law that, that God lays down is that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And we see a similar idea that there's dignity and honor associated with that in James 3, mm. when James is talking about how with our tongues we curse God, or we bless God, mm. and we curse man who was made in the likeness of God. And that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And so there, there's a certain honor and dignity that, that comes with being made in the image of God. That means then taking that life doesn't destroy that, the image, but it is dishonoring to the God. In, in whose image that person was created. That's very interesting that you can also make an argument that you, you just brought comes from one of the first books that was written. Uh, and then as far as the chronology of time, it's the early record uh, of humanity. And then you have James, which is one of the last books written. And, uh, and there's a common theme in mm -hmm. both of them. I think you've done a good job of showing here. Now, uh, sometimes people 
kill people in the Bible and it may be commanded of God, or it may be done and it was neither condemned uh, nor praised by God. So um, are there times when taking life is appropriate and how does that differ from abortion? Yeah, I think the Bible does make a distinction between uh, taking life and murder. Okay. And so murder is the unlawful taking of human life. Uh, God actually gave the government the sword. So, for example, Genesis 9, uh, whoever takes, sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And so he's authorizing in a sense there is people with proper authority to mete out punishment in order to take life. And so that's where we get, you know, capital punishment, uh, just war. There are times in which the government has the sword, as has been described in Romans 13, yeah. and therefore they have legitimate means to take human life. They're, they're, they're only to do so in just ways, and they're going to answer to God for how they exercise the sword. Okay, now but that's different than uh, someone choosing on their own mm -hmm. to take someone else's life. So far in this conversation, my questions and your answers have come from the presupposition that uh, an unborn child, an unborn baby is a human. Mm -hmm. And for the sake of our audience, I should clarify that, of course, I agree with you 100% on that matter. However, playing devil's advocate to kind of see your answer, um, if I were to trim my fingernails or cut my hair, uh, that's not committing anything we would consider immoral, nor am I murdering anybody by, by altering my body in this way. The usual argument, or one of the, the arguments that would come from the pro-choice side is that uh, the baby is not yet a baby. It is something that's forming inside of my body. It's a part of my body. Uh, and so it's no different than uh, getting a heart surgery uh, or something like that. It's, it, it's, uh, it's a medical procedure. How, how would you respond to that? And do you think that the a biblical answer. Obviously, there's the science of the answer, but the, from the Bible, do we have an answer for that? Yes, we, we do have an answer from the Bible. So, so from science, I think that the simple answer is to say that it, the, the unborn child is a unique human entity. He has his own DNA. She has her own DNA, mm -hmm. um, distinct from the mother. And, and so it is a human organism from the moment of conception. And I think scripture actually would, would emphasize as well the, the, the uniqueness and personhood of someone from conception. So, so Psalm 51.5 says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so from the moment of conception, the psalmist is saying, I'm, I'm sinful. And, and to be sinful, really, you have to be a person. Hmm. We don't talk about animals being sinful. We don't talk about trees being sinful. Only persons are sinful. And so David says, from conception, I was sinful. Uh, psalm 139 as well, another psalm of David, he talks about God forming his inward parts in mm -hmm. verses 13 yeah. to 16. And, and David doesn't say, you were, you know, working on something that eventually became me. Mm -hmm. He says, no, that was me. Yeah. You were forming me. Um, my frame was not hidden from you. And so uh, we see that as well, the, the point that even in the womb, David existed as a person. And in one of the... the passages that I remember I came to when I was in college talking with a friend about this issue was in Luke 1. After Mary is told that, that she's going to be with child from the Holy Spirit, um, she goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, and it says Elizabeth was six months pregnant, and she comes up, and the child in her womb leaps for joy. And so that seems, well, the baby's doing something. It's, a it's expressing joy. Yeah, demonstration but of receptivity to God, receptivity to human interaction. Yes. And so on. But what's interesting is the Elizabeth calls Mary at that point in time the mother of my Lord. 
And she can't be the mother of the Lord unless he's already, he's already in there. there. Yeah. And so the Lord is in her. And yeah. she's only heard this message. It actually said she, she went with haste to go visit her cousins. This is a very short amount of time after she heard the message from the angel. And so this was very quickly after the time in which Jesus was conceived in her womb. And she's already his mother because he's a person inside of her. Interesting. Yeah, I've enjoyed your arguments so far, Ben, and the, and the, the evidence from Scripture that you've presented. Um, I particularly enjoy that uh, these, are, these are scriptural answers, uh, but there are answers that I've actually, some of them, uh, I've not things I've heard touched on before. So where, uh, where uh, you can find, when something is true, you can usually find more than one reason why it's true, more than one evidence of why it's true. And so I think you've brought some things uh, that uh, at least in uh, in my short time at Right to Life of Michigan, I've not brought up uh, on the podcast or in uh, in discussion. So thank you for uh, bringing these things up. I wanted to ask, um, and this is kind of the hard question I was uh, in, in, uh, insinuating, kind of referring to at the beginning of the podcast here. Um, in your posi- in your position, in your opinion, would banning abortion be an enforcement of a religion? And by that I mean like when we say abortion should be illegal, are we enforcing our religious views on other people? Uh, I'd like to answer that question by ultimately saying no, but also saying there is some element of truth in which religion is involved. Okay. Right, so let me first begin by, by saying no, um, because from a biblical perspective, government isn't designed to enforce religion. It is, however, instituted by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And sometimes in discussions about abortion, you'll hear people say, well, I mean, you can't legislate morality. Mm-hmm. And so why would we want to legislate something like this? And I think there's some truth behind that idea. You can't legislate morality. What that means is through legislation, you can't make someone believe something is right. You can't change their heart. Only, yes. only God can change someone's heart. But you can change their actions. And in fact, legislation always does that. Mm-hmm. Almost every kind of legislation on some level is reflecting an idea of what's moral or immoral. You think we already have, legis- we have laws against rape and incest. We have yes. laws against murder. We, we have laws against theft. All of these things are things we would consider morally wrong. Yes. Uh, and so we've, we've done away with them, not just because they're morally wrong, but because they damage a person. All of the things you mentioned damage some person, yeah. and abortion damages a person. Yes, yes. And I think something that's interesting as well to think through is the idea that laws actually have a teaching function. That I've heard it put this way. You know, in, in America, probably most of the, the churches you'd go to, at least, you know, I, I, the Baptist church, most Baptist churches, most Christians would think it's perfectly good for everyone to, to have guns and, and ammo in order to protect themselves. And my guess is over in, in England, you talk to most Christians, they might think that's a little strange mm-hmm. that you'd have all this idea that, yeah, of course we should have a right to, to buy a gun. And the reason is because it's legal here and it's illegal there. Now, whether it's right or wrong, uh, either way, I think the law has some type of, of teaching function. Yes. So the right now, because abortion has been legal for so many years, I think a lot of people automatically assume, well, there can't be anything wrong with it. It's legal. And I think actually over time, if, if abortion became illegal, you'd have more and more people beginning to recognize no, this is a problem. This right. is wrong. Because it's illegal, there must be something wrong with it. So what's wrong with it? And then they think about it from mm-hmm. that perspective. Um, that, and we have biblical, not just the biblical teaching of that, but we also have biblical examples of that, what you just brought up. Kings in the Old Testament, it will often say the king 
uh, did evil in the sight of the Lord, and then it will say he caused the people Mm -hmm. to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Ahab comes to mind. I'm sure there's other examples. Uh, But in effect, the person who was in leadership did what was wrong, and then him being the law in his land, the other people did wrong as well. When the king did right, many times the people did right. And when the king did wrong, many times the people did wrong. And this reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, a school teacher uh, in in China. You and I were talking earlier before this podcast about uh, we've both been to China before. And uh, I was talking to a man there uh, who who was talking about this issue of abortion. And I said, I was arguing from the premise that it's a person and murdering a person is always wrong. Killing a person is wrong. Uh, and so he, uh, he said, no, it's, it's not morally wrong to kill a person. And he wasn't just talking about the issue of abortion. He meant in general, it's not wrong to kill a person. He says, the reason we think it's wrong is because our government makes it illegal. That's why we think it's wrong. So even this, uh, this atheist, a pro-abortion atheist, would agree with your position that the government um, does not, he, in his case, he thinks the government determines reality or determines morality. In your case, you say the government kind of teaches us mm-hmm. morality. We come into what's allowed and what's not allowed, and that gives us uh, a place to start from in what we think is right and wrong. Yeah. Now, now to go back to your original question, I, I said no with a, with a kind of a qualified yes. And mm-hmm. the qualified yes is that depending upon what you mean by religion, mm-hmm. No one is actually setting aside their religion when they come to this discussion. Okay. Uh, because there's, there's some debate about what religion is. But honestly, as, as I've wrestled through it, I, I think on some level you, you can't ultimately tear apart religion from just a gen- general worldview an understanding of values, an understanding of uh, what reality is. Mm-hmm. And anytime anyone comes to this discussion, they have a worldview they're bringing. They have a perspective on what is good and what is right. And that's true for abortion. That's true for a lot of things. If, if we were to say, how should, how should adoption be set up in society? Well, immediately we're, we're beginning to, to wrestle with, well, what constitutes a family? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what right does uh, a, a natural parents have over to their children? When can the government potentially step in and take children uh, from parents? How should we evaluate whether or not parents are good parents to receive children. And all of those are going to be determined by our understanding of what's right and what's good and what matters and what's most important. And, and the same thing's true in abortion. Is what's most important our individual rights to pursue our own dreams, our own desires? Is it to be free from the, the responsibilities of, of parenthood? Is it to be able to, to have physical relationships with other people without consequences. And if so, then it makes a lot of sense to say, well, yeah, a person should be able to end a pregnancy in that kind of language. But if really what matters most is the value of human life and and the the reality that that parents have an obligation to their children, uh, such that it's it's horrific if a parent were actually to to murder their own children, then then it's a very different understanding, a different perspective. And, and, And anyone who's come into this discussion has these beliefs. They have these values. And so it's, it's really unfair to say, well, Christians, you can't bring your beliefs and values to the table. Only we get to bring our beliefs and values to the table in this So discussion. would you say that by that definition, all people are religious because all people have views on morality and all people exercise some faith in that morality in that they're having to say 
without any scriptural authority, because they don't, if, they, if they're an atheist, for example, if they don't believe the Bible is true for whatever reason, they're an atheist or they are ascribed to some other religion, they have to exercise some faith. They have to exercise some trust that the Bible is false, even if they don't have complete evidence of that, they don't have sufficient evidence of that, or they don't have sufficient evidence of their belief. They have what's sufficient for them, but ultimately they say, okay, I have enough evidence for this moralistic belief that I have to make a jump of faith and say that it's 100% true, even though uh, they don't necessarily have a foundation to put that on. So I think, I think, would you agree with this statement that all people are religious because they exercise morality and faith? Or, or Yeah, I, I would say all that? people are religious. Um, and, and I don't know that it's necessarily solely tied to the exercise of faith. I think morality is a big part of it. Religion tends to be a place that in which you learn what is right and what is wrong. Um, but I'd say even if I can say this, someone saying you cannot have faith is a religious statement. And so everyone in some level has religious beliefs. They have moral values. They, they have sometimes what's called first principles an understanding of, of what's at the foundation of the world, what is ultimately reality. And so even the simple question of what is a human? Mm-hmm. Does a human have dignity? Does a human not have dignity? Are humans just animals? And if they're just animals, then you get someone like Peter Singer who comes along and says, well, actually, you know, the life of a chimpanzee might be more valuable than the life of a, a, a one-year-old hmm. because the one-year-old doesn't have the ability to reason. Chimpanzees are the worst animals on the face of the earth. I, I, I now have this opportunity to share this on this podcast. Chimpanzees are all bad. That is a fact. Yeah. All right, I'll move on. <laughs> uh, number four, have you heard about the petition drive to amend the Michigan Constitution? Uh, and then any thoughts on the issue if, you, if you've looked into it? i not really heard of it. I looked into it briefly okay. when you sent me uh, the, the invitation to come to the podcast. I assume you're talking about the a drive to amend the Constitution to basically make abortion in the Constitution. Yes, and this right is not to be confused to with the, uh, the recent thing that went through our uh, our national uh, House and Senate, this, this, uh, this push. They said to codify Roe, but they added a lot of things to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not talking about that, of course. We're talking about on, in Michigan to amend Michigan's Constitution. Okay. Uh, so you you looked into it a little bit briefly. I mean, I, basically, I would say, I mean, I have no desire in any way to to allow abortion to continue. Right now, um, some people are not aware, but some people are aware that abortion is illegal in Michigan and has always been illegal in in Michigan. Um, by that, I mean it was officially uh, it was officially outlawed, I believe, in 1846. And then that law was kind of reinforced. We, we, it was strengthened in its ability to be enforced in 1931. Uh, and then that law has never been repealed. Abortion's never been legalized. Roe v. Wade has simply not allowed us to enforce that law mm-hmm. uh, in the way that we would like. So the overturning of Roe v. Wade gives us an opportunity to go back and enforce these laws that we've uh, had on our, our books for over 170 years. Mm-hmm. But Planned Parenthood uh, and other organizations like them, they, they're just as aware of that as anyone, and they've uh, put in a lot of effort into stopping that. And, of course, we could talk about court battles and other things that we're currently involved in uh, at Right to Life of Michigan. But in particular, this, this uh, amendment would add a right to an abortion uh, and then would open the door to a lot of other issues. Um, but it, primarily today I wanted to discuss that it opens the door to abortion up to 
and including birth. Uh, and that's something that, uh, even though I haven't met you till today, uh, I don't think you're in uh, support of. No, absolutely not. And, and that's, I mean, that would actually be going beyond what Roe currently even uh, legalizes. Yes, it would. Uh, uh, that would make us more more radical than what Roe was even meant to uh, to to allow for. Roe was simply a restriction on uh, making laws prior to viability, which is a shifting line and can be and can be quite a conversation itself. Right. Now, what do you feel pro-life Christians should do about abortion? What's some things that uh, that we should all be doing? Yeah. If I could maybe just give four suggestions okay. for, for what Christians can do. The first is to make sure you settle this issue in your own mind and heart. Um, Romans 14 talks about uh, being convinced in your own mind. Um, and it's, Romans 14 may not be the best passage to look to because I think that's a passage that, that really is talking about things that Scripture isn't clear on. And I think Scripture is clear on the issue of abortion. But I think no matter what, we have an obligation to, to make sure that we are studying God's word to be able to think clearly about this. Okay. And so if you're uncertain, if you're questioning, take the time to look into this and, and, and settle this in your mind and heart. Right. And secondly, I think scripture would call us to, to defend the defenseless. In Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And I can't think of any person in society who would qualify as mute more than unborn children. Mm. I mean, one a whole class of people who can say nothing about their rights. Yeah. And we're called to open our mouth for people like that. Or Psalm 82, 3 and 4, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And again, I can't think of a group that would be more weak than unborn children. Mm-hmm. They, they are completely dependent at that point in time. Uh, for their lives. And so I think we have an obligation to, to seek to defend uh, people like that. And then one of the ways that we can uh, support the pro-life agenda, as I think, is, is supporting adoption, whether that's considering adopting yourself or or contributing to others who are adopt, would, would be interested in, in pursuing adoption, uh, because the reality is these are children that often the parents uh, aren't capable of actually raising them. Um, or if they don't want to, that's not a great situation for that child either. I think that's probably still better than being dead. But um, we should be looking to, to see for how we can help support and, and further and care for, for children rather than saying, hey, you don't want this pregnancy, end it. Say, no, we want this child. Right. We'd pure, love to be helped. Pure religion and yeah. undefiled before God is this. I think it's a, the Bible says yeah. to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Yeah. So basically, James w- women yeah. and children who are in trouble uh, and uh, they're, they're in affliction, it is pure religion in God's perspective. What, what he expects of us is for us to, to intervene in that situation and to help. And that was your, that was your third, third yeah. so challenge. My, so what's my, my fourth, and this is specifically for Christians. And, and, and I'd say I'm very thankful that there are people who are not Christians who also believe in the right to life and are, and are pro-life. Yeah. And I'm thankful for, for them pushing to, to try to see changes in legislation and things like that. But I know for me, as a Christian, the, the, the most central truth that I have is not that human life is valuable. It's that Jesus died for my sins. Mm. And I have a message of hope that only the gospel has. And as we talk about these issues, I, you might even be listening to this podcast and, and maybe you had an abortion and it haunts you. 
and and you are 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 just distraught over the reality of, of what what happened and and the good news of Jesus Christ is that there is repentance and forgiveness of sins and this message is something that Jesus told Christians we need to proclaim this in his name to all nations and so our primary message is not end abortion that's a good message our primary message always has to be there's hope in Jesus Christ we're all sinners we have all fallen short of the glory of God but we can be transformed through his his work we can find forgiveness of sins in his name and that's a message that that only Christians have mm-hmm. and that's always going to be our top priority right now if someone out there is listening uh, to this podcast and you've had an abortion, I hope that you understand that when people like Ben or other Christians talk about abortion being a sin, that's not their attempt to to hurt you or harm you, but actually to point you to the hope uh, that Ben is talking about. If somebody's, if somebody's drowning or somebody's house is on fire, being kind to them isn't telling them, your house is not on fire, you don't need to get back in the boat. That's not helpful for people. Sometimes you have to point out the problem. Yes, abortion is a sin. But the Bible says that all have sinned. Uh, and, so, and so, Ben, would you just expound a little bit more as we wrap up here? How does somebody obtain that hope? The Bible calls God repeatedly the God of hope. Yeah. And people in the Bible repeatedly say phrases like, I will put my hope in God. Our hope is in God. I will trust in God. So how does somebody obtain that hope that you have? Yeah. So I, I kind of reference Jesus's command for us in, in Luke 24 to talk about repentance and forgiveness of sins. And what I'd say is, is someone who does not currently have hope in God, that what they need to do is they need to turn from their sin. They need to recognize the state they're in. They need to say, I'm in this burning building. I'm drowning, and I can't do anything. And what they need to do then is trust God, call out to him, ask him to forgive them, ask him to give them a new heart, to, to make them new, to, to cause them to be born again, and, and to, to recognize that in Jesus' death, he paid the penalty for our sins. And so we're called to, to trust in him and rest in him alone. Amen. Okay, now as we wrap up here, uh, I wanted to ask if anybody out there is listening, Ben, and they want to uh, they want to follow you or they want to reach out to you, how, how can people connect with you? In what ways can they uh, uh, keep up with you and the, and the uh, seminary you work at? Yeah, so our seminary website is dbts.edu. You can find information about our seminary. We have a blog where we've put up several articles about the issue of abortion over the years. Uh, You could search for that. There's a search tab. You can find many of those articles. We also have a podcast, Theologically Driven. Uh, You can find that podcast anywhere where you get your podcast, uh, Google Play, Apple, Stitcher. uh, And you can also find that on our website, dbts.edu. All right. Well, Ben, I want to thank you once again for being with us, and I want to thank our audience uh, for, for being here with us. Thank you, Ben. Really, uh, really enjoyed uh, getting to know you a little bit and learning about uh, your pro-life position and how, how uh, Christians can communicate that. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.